I was recently watching a special on Pompeii, the Roman town that was destroyed in AD 79 when Mount Vesuvius erupted. It buried the city under 13 to 20 feet of pumice and ash. Researchers really didn't know how the volcano destroyed the city until Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980 and it blew the side of the mountain out. And so that gave them a point of reference that that's probably what happened with Mount Vesuvius. The side of the mountain blew out and the ash and the pumice came down and encapsulated the city of Pompeii. Then at the end of the special, they reminded us that Mount Vesuvius is still a very active volcano. Here's a picture of it from today. And that now there are more people living around the volcano than there were during Roman times. And it could erupt at any moment if the pressure got great enough and it would blow out the side of the mountain again. And so I guess that's not very helpful if you're living in Naples or anywhere around Mount Vesuvius. The reality is that we ourselves are actually dormant volcanoes that can become very active. We have this pressure inside of us as we have been living these past couple weeks during this pandemic. Or perhaps you remember in college or you have recently finished your semester of college where you're carrying a heavy class load and you know there's this great pressure on you. Maybe you're tending to an aged parent or a child who is sick. You're trying to keep your business afloat, trying to keep finances in order and all the economic downturns that we're experiencing now. And sometimes you feel like this volcano, there's this pressure and it's just kind of building up inside of us. And we will be tempted, if we're not careful, to just let the top blow maybe through angry outbursts or hurtful words or emotional or perhaps even physical abuse. And so one of the things that this pandemic has done is it has put this pressure on us. And if we're honest, we can feel like those volcanoes that inside there's this pressure, but we don't know when it's going to blow or if it's going to blow. How many people have been wounded by us and how many times have we been wounded by other people's stress and anxiety when the top just blew off? But conversely, how many disasters have been averted? Because one person refused to let the lid blow under this pressure of stress. How many disasters have been averted when someone did the appropriate steps so that the top of the volcano of our lives did not blow off? So this is the composure that Paul is reminding us and calling us to in Philippians chapter 4. And he's going to make some statements in our next section of walking through Philippians chapter 4 that are going to help us in these moments of anxiety and stress and how to keep calm. And that's the acronym we've been looking at. The first calm was celebrate God's goodness. So we looked at the fact that God is sovereign. We can celebrate that. We can celebrate God's mercy. He doesn't treat us according to our sin as our sins deserve. We can also celebrate God's goodness always because the Lord is near. And because he's near, we know that we can trust in him and rely on him and press into him in these moments. Well, now we're going to get to the A, which is ask God for help. And so this is that place where now we are actively involved in seeking God's help. And one of those places we need to be actively involved in seeking God's help is this, this uh, pressure that we're under and this kind of volcanic living that we're in right now. And so Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, he says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Now there's two parts of this phrase. The first part of the phrase is this. Let your gentleness. It's a temperament. It's a temperament that's seasoned and mature. The word uh, that is uh, translated gentleness means an attitude fitting to the occasion, level-headed and tempered. It's the very opposite of a volcano blowing. It's that level-headed, that evenness. The opposite reaction would be a sense of panic or overreaction. And so Paul, first of all, in this phrase says, let your gentleness, we have, 
We are to maintain this sense of steady pressure, of even-keeled living, of not allowing the situations in life to have us erupt in ways that are not healthy for us or to others around us. Which is why the second part of this phrase, he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. That this gentleness needs to be manifest in our lives that other people can see it. Family members should take note. Our friends should sense a difference. Our co-workers should benefit. In other words, this gentleness in our lives should be evident to those that we live with and that we live around and we, we interact with. While others may take note of this gentleness, this sober-minded, this clear thinking. In other words, what we are is we are contagiously calm. It is in us, but it also affects those around us. The contagiously calm person is that person who reminds others of things like this. God is in control. It's going to be okay. We rejoice in the Lord's sovereignty. Or a person who is contagiously calm, sees a challenge and says, you know what, these are tough times, but we're going to get through this. So how do we get this? How do we keep our heads cool when everyone else's heads are heating up? How do we not only keep the lid from the volcano from blowing, but also minimize the pressure that's inside of us, that buildup inside of us that sometimes can become very overwhelming? Well, the, the way that we do this is the second part of this. Let your gentleness be known to all. It's contagious because the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. The Lord is near. You are not alone. You may feel that you're alone. You may think that you're alone. But the fact is, you are not alone. There is never a moment in your life that you are facing that you do not have help. God is near. In fact, God repeatedly gives this promise to his people of his presence in the, the lives of his people. Look at these scriptures. In Genesis 15, God says to Abram, Do not be afraid. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And then in Genesis, to Hagar, who had fled because of Abram and Sarah's conspiring about having a child outside of the plan of the Lord, uh, the angel said to Hagar, do not be afraid. God has heard. When Isaac was forced to move from place to place, God appeared to him and reminded him in Genesis, do not be afraid for I am with you. After Moses' death, God told Joshua, who was now going to lead the nation of Israel, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. You got to look up that verse in your Bible and underline that. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. There's never a challenge in life that you face alone. Joshua certainly faced many challenges as he led the Israelites into the promised land, as he had those battles and dealt with sin in the camp and, and all the challenges that came from leading these people. But God reminded him, and he reminds us as well, when we face these challenges, God will be with you wherever you go. Whatever you go through, God is with you. It's one thing to face a challenge. It's another thing to face it all alone. Many of the messages that we've heard over these last few months are messages that, that we are not alone, that, that we're all in this together, that we are all apart, but we're together. And one of the best messages that I've heard is this. We are not all in the same boat, but we're all in the same storm. That we all have different 
circumstances and different reactions to this, this storm that we're in. And, and each person's situation is a little different, but we're still all in this together. Isolation creates a downward cycle of fret and anxiety. And it's one thing to feel that I'm going through a challenge, but it's another thing to feel that I'm going through it alone. The Bible constantly reminds us over and over again that you are not alone in your struggle. In fact, in Psalm 118, the psalmist writes this, the Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The psalmist is uh, placing his faith and his trust in the Lord, and he makes that declarative statement, the Lord is with me. And you may need to say that right now. The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. And you keep saying that until that word gets into your heart. I will not be afraid. Why? Because the Lord is with me. There are many fearful circumstances and fearful challenges, and the Bible never minimizes what we go through. But what the Bible does remind us is that the Lord is near and we do not have to be afraid. And because the Lord is near, Paul reminds us, we can be anxious for nothing. This is Paul's point. When the Bible was written and the book of Philippians was written, it was written without chapter and verse numbers. It was written with one long letter from beginning to end, often in all capital letters and often even without spaces. It was just a run-on of Greek letters. And it's important for us to understand this because Paul's flow of thought is this, that in uh, verse 5 and 6, it is, the Lord is with us, the Lord is near, do not be anxious. Because if you look in your Bibles, there's a verse division between the Lord is near and do not be anxious. But what the phrase, the Lord is near, Paul immediately connected it to the fact that we don't have to be anxious. In fact, the early church fathers interpreted it this very way. John Chrysostom liked to phrase it this way, the Lord is at hand, have no anxiety. And Theodoret of Cyrus says, the Lord is near, have no worries. And we can calmly take our concerns to the Lord because the Lord is near. This was Jesus' reassuring message in the situation or the incident we find himself with the loaves and the fishes trying to feed the 5,000 people. In John chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, we read this. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for all these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already knew in his mind what he was going to do. Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, I want you to feed these people. And have you ever noticed how Jesus asked questions? He tests his disciples with a question because Jesus, the Bible says he already knew in his mind what he was going to do, but he wanted to give his disciples, he wants to give us a little bit of a different perspective. He, that's his sovereignty. He asked the question because he wanted them to see the situation from his perspective. The Bible says the great crowd was 5,000 men. That didn't include the, the women and the children. And so Jesus was asking his disciples to feed an entire crowd at a Caps game at the Capital One Arena. He looks at his disciples and says, you see all these people? I want you to feed them. But here's what the disciples do in response to this. You read this in Matthew chapter 14. The disciples wanted to get rid of everyone. And so as evening came, they came to Jesus and they said to him, this is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some more food. Now, the first thing you need to notice about this verse is how they approached Jesus. They didn't say master. They didn't say teacher. They didn't say Lord. 
They simply came to Jesus and said, send them away. They don't want to be bothered. They knew hungry people could become hangry people, and they would need far more than a Snickers bar to satisfy their hunger. And so the disciples, their reaction was just get rid of them, send them away. It's kind of what we want to do sometimes with Jesus. Jesus, just get rid of this. Send this away. I don't want to deal with it. And Jesus is going to teach us in this uh, feeding of the 5,000 that there are some other ways that we can approach situations other than just get rid of them. Just get them out of my life. But think about the disciples. Think about all that they had already seen Jesus do. They had been traveling with him. This wasn't the first time he had asked uh, something impossible to be done. It wasn't the first time that he showed his power. So up to this point, the disciples had seen him heal leprosy. They saw him heal the centurion's servant. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He kind of calmed a violent sea. He healed a paralytic. He healed a woman who had been sick for 12 years. He raised a girl from the dead. He drove out an evil spirit. He healed a demon-possessed man in the cemetery. He changed water into wine. And he had healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. This is the Jesus that they had traveled with and they had seen for all this time doing all these things. And yet they come to this moment and they say, Jesus, send them away. There's really nothing that, they, that can be done. And Jesus tells us that when it's hard to believe him, believe the evidence. In fact, that's what he says in John 14, 11. He said, believe me when I say that I am in the Father, the Father is in me or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. That's what he wants to remind his disciples. He also wants to remind us that when it's hard to believe him, to look at the evidence of all that he is and all that he has done, but the disciples forgot this. They didn't think and take a pause to process what Jesus was asking them, and it never occurred to them to ask Jesus for help. In spite of all these things that Jesus had done, they simply said, just send them away. They acted as if Jesus wasn't even present. At first, they thought that there wasn't enough money and it couldn't be done. And so finally, a boy offered his lunch basket to Andrew. And we read this in John chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And they, <clears throat> they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. Now think about what had just happened. The disciples were worried about not having enough resources, not enough money to buy food for all of these people but not one coin was spent. All the money the disciples had at the beginning of this buffet were left, over, were left at the end of the buffet. They left and ended the day with all the money in their pockets. And not only that, the Bible says there was 12 baskets of, of food left over. I wonder if it was a, a doggy bag for each of the apostles, or maybe a souvenir, maybe a reminder, Maybe a little bit of a lesson that as you take this food home to not discount what Jesus can do. It was a reminder. In fact, in John chapter 6 and verse 14, it says, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come 
into the world. The people saw what Jesus had done. The disciples just saw the problem. And they didn't see Jesus because they forgot Jesus was with them. And if we want to remain calm, if we want to have the sense in our lives that the, the, the volcano doesn't blow, we need to remember that Jesus is with us, that Jesus is near, that we can have this con contagious calm. The reason we're practicing social distancing, the reason that we wear face masks, the reason that we avoid people and walk around people on the sidewalks is because we don't want to pass on something to them or receive something from them. But here's an idea. There is something in this pandemic that we can pass along to others, and it's calm. Contagious calm. Wouldn't it be great to have something infectious rather than the virus? Something positive that's infectious? Well, that's a, this, it's a contagious calm that Paul's talking about. He says, let it be evident to all. This, this, this peace that we have, this, this uh, lack of anxiety, he said, can be contagious. Well, there's a couple ways that uh, things we can learn, a couple lessons. The first one is this. We do not need to be anxious because Jesus is near. Now, we are not facing thousands and thousands of hungry faces looking for us to provide the food for them, but we may be facing a few hungry faces in our families or a few uncertain uh, faces in our families and with our friends, the people that are around us perhaps up against a financial deadline in a few days, or uncertain about the future. On one hand, we have a problem, and on the other hand, we have limited time, energy, and resources, and we just don't know how it's going to come to fruition. We don't know how we're going to get through this. We have just a small cup, and we need gallons and gallons and gallons in our life right now. The boy had the small lunch. Jesus multiplied that and multiplied that until there was even leftovers. And so we do not need to fear because Jesus is near. You see, the disciples just saw the problem, all these hungry people and no way to feed them, and there was Jesus. And our eyes need to be on more than just the problem, and how am I going to get through this, and how is this going to be resolved? I need to understand that Jesus is near. Lesson two is this. Instead of starting with what we have, we start with what Jesus has. You see, the disciples were just starting with what they had. They had limited funds, and they knew there was not enough funds to feed everyone, and so they were starting with their resources. But what if we started with Jesus' resources instead? What does Jesus have? He has unlimited wealth and resources and strength. And before you count your money, before you count your problems, count how many times Jesus has helped you face the impossible. The disciples had forgot all that Jesus had done in the year and that they had been walking with him and the time they had been walking with him. They had forgot all that and they forgot to count and list all the ways of, that Jesus was able to overcome adversity and help people and heal people and raise them up. So instead of starting with what we have, start with what Jesus has. Before you succumb to fear, look up in faith. Bill Frey in his book, The Dance of Hope, remembers the day he tried to pull out a stump from the dirt. He was 11 years old and one of his jobs was gathering firewood for the small stove in the homestead where his family lived. And he writes this, one day I found a large stump in an open field near the house and tried to unearth it. I literally pushed and pulled and crowbarred for hours, but the root system was so deep and so large I simply couldn't pull it out of the ground. I was still struggling when my father came 
home from his office, spotted me working and came over to watch. I think I see your problem, he said. What's that, I asked. You're not using all your strength, he replied. I exploded and told him how hard I had worked and for how long. No, he said, you're not using all your strength. When I cooled down and asked him what he meant, he said, you haven't asked me to help you yet. You see, the business of dealing with anxiety is like trying to pull stumps out of the ground. Some worries have deep root systems. Our families of origin or our fearful friends tend to dig those roots of fear deep down in. And so pulling out that stump is going to take a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of work. And pulling out stumps is backbreaking, tough, hard work. It may be the toughest challenge of all. But Paul reminds us that we don't have to do it alone. Even in this tough challenge of pulling out this stump of anxiety and this that has very deep roots, that we tap into the strength that God can give us. One of the mantras that we hear today is data and science, data and science, data and science. That science is going to solve all of our problems and we just have to get to the right place in science that we could be free. It seems like science kind of got us into this depending on where the virus originated. Well, here's what science is. Science is man trying to find a solution without God. You see, the solution to anxiety is not science, but it's a savior. Science is wonderful and can do great things and it can't do what only God can do. Here's the ultimate proof that God is near. He calls himself Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus became flesh. He became sin. He defeated the grave, and he is still with us. His spirit comforts us. And because of that moment on the cross, Jesus was drinking in the very dregs of human bitterness. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The point is this, that he felt human destitution to its absolute degree. The point is that God is with us, not beyond us, in suffering. Jesus was forsaken so that I don't have to be. When I am in Christ, I have all the benefits of Christ applied to my life. And Jesus on the cross was abandoned and forsaken by his Father, why did he do that? So that I wouldn't have to be abandoned. And I wouldn't have to be forsaken. Do you know what the real condition or the real issue is during these stressful times? It's not the virus. It's not the economy. It's not all the external things. It always comes back to the root of all issues in my life. And it's the condition of my heart. The problem is not the situation. Your problem is not whatever situation you're finding yourself in right now. The problem is what we are struggling with in the midst of the situation. The pandemic is not our problem spiritually. Our problem spiritually is what we are struggling with in the midst of the pandemic. Are you struggling with anxiety? That's the issue. Are you struggling with fear? Maybe fear that's paralyzing you, keeping you up at night, making you angry and anxious. You see, the, the fear is your problem in the midst of the pandemic. That's the issue of the heart. Maybe you're dealing with anger, just frustration of anger about all the things that you see going on around you. You see, the pandemic isn't your problem 
Your problem is your anger in the midst of the situation. God is concerned about our hearts. And those are the places that God wants to address in our lives. God wants to address our anxiety. He wants to address our fear. He wants to address our anger. But isn't it true, and don't we find that those are the issues that we suppress and we don't want to deal with? We want to deal with all the externals. We want to deal with the economy and with money and with sickness. At the same time, the fear and the anxiety and the anger we have pushed down in our hearts and we become like those volcanoes. And the more we push down and don't acknowledge it, the more the pressure builds up. And one day it's going to be released. You see, in the midst of your problems and your pain and your situation, God always wants to address your heart. What's the state of your heart? What are the things in your heart? Because here's the fact. If our hearts are bad, our lives will be bad. It's the root and the fruit that Jesus talks about. You see, the root of our lives, is if, if our heart is bad or there's something in there, there's going to be bad fruit. That's why Christianity is always an inside job. Always inside first, because then whatever is inside eventually comes out. So I can either have a bad heart with anxiety and anger and bitterness and fear and frustration, all the things that can reside in there, it'll eventually come out. Or I can have this peace and I can have this comfort in my life and all of a sudden this calm in my life, that will also come out and it will be contagious. You know your anger is contagious, your fear is contagious, your anxiety is contagious. Nervous people and fearful people make other fearful people. Anxious people tend to make other people anxious. Angry people tend to make other people angry or at least hurt them. All those things are contagious. Why not have something in our lives that is positive and contagious? And that is a contagious calm. Here's what I know about contagious calm. It'll happen to the degree that we turn to him. It will happen to the degree that we turn to Jesus. One of the most common struggles in a crisis is feeling that we are all alone. We are not alone in the crisis, but we can feel alone in our feelings. Yes, we know, we hear that we're in this together and, and we are all experiencing this, but if we're honest in those quiet moments of the day, in those times that we have to reflect, Sometimes we feel alone in our feelings. We feel that no one is feeling the same way. And it's important that we hold on to God's promises of I will be with you, to incarnate them ourselves, to flesh those out in our lives, and to live in the reality that God is with us. Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, prayed in John chapter 14, and here's what he says. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives in you and will be in you. 
I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Did you hear those great promises that Jesus gave to those who love him and follow him and, and, and obey his commands? He says, I'm going to give you another advocate. What's an advocate? An advocate is a helper, someone who comes alongside, and he will be with you forever. This spirit of truth. Jesus was crucified, buried, resurrected. He ascended to the Father, but then he sent the Spirit, and the Spirit now resides in our lives. And so we have this nearness of God in a way that the disciples didn't have, even when Jesus was physically present, because God now lives in us. Jesus lives in our hearts. And that's something that even the disciples didn't experience. So we even have a better closeness of Jesus than the disciples did with him walking personally in the flesh. But the promise he says is this, I will not leave you as orphans. An orphan is someone who has been abandoned by their parents. But we have a heavenly father who will not abandon us. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you without support. I'm not going to leave you without help. I'm not going to leave you without any parental guidance or input. He said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he did come to us on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Spirit was given as an indwelling gift to all those who received the gift of salvation. We have a Heavenly Father who will not leave us. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 15 and 16. He writes this, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? The answer is yes. A mother can forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born. But then God contrasts who he is with this kind of a mother, one who would abandon her child and have leave that child as an orphan. God says this, Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Do you know that when you are in Jesus, that you are tattooed on God's hands? That you are in a family, you've been adopted into a family, that God is your Father and the Spirit lives in us. You are never alone. And God has promised us that. And God has promised us that when we understand that the Lord is near, we can be anxious for nothing and have a contagious calm that other people look at us and they say, wow, how are you so calm? And my answer is, the Lord is near. You know, we constantly do battle with the enemy. We constantly do battle with the lies of the enemy, the lies of the world. Jesus said in John chapter 14 that the the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world is that kingdom that's opposed to the kingdom of God. And so the world and Satan will come and will whisper into our ears when we are struggling in hardships and in pandemics and circumstances. He will come and he'll whisper into your ear, where is your God now? He's not here. He forgot about you. He can't do anything about the situation. You are all alone. Why does Satan whisper that in our ear? So that we believe it. So that that lie gets a hook into our heart and all of a sudden we start to doubt God's goodness and we start to doubt God's presence and we start to doubt that God is with us and then we want to give up and we want to go over and uh, to the other team and say, Lord, 
you aren't here, I'm done. And so we replace that lie with the truth that Paul reminds us is that the Lord is near. And so when you find yourself in these struggling moments of pandemic and of fear and of anxiety, and Satan whispers into your ear, where is your God now? You reiterate the truth of God's word. The Lord is near. I am engraved on the palms of his hands. He hasn't forgotten me. He hasn't given up on me. He will not leave me as an orphan. He will not abandon me. The Lord is near. And so I can have this contagious calm in the midst of whatever life brings because I know that the Lord is near. Have you focused your life on Jesus? Are you looking at the resources that he can bring instead of what we have? Are you understanding that the Lord is near? Do you understand that this calm can be contagious as we allow God to, to work in our hearts and to address the issues of our hearts? Listen, I want this thing to go away. We all want it to go away. The disciples wanted the crowd to go away. Jesus gives us a different perspective. Jesus gives us a different ability. Jesus gives us a different way to approach the problems of life. He says, I am the answer. I am the solution. I have the resources. You look to me. And my calm is contagious to the degree that I draw near to him. Would you draw near to God? Would you... Once again, just believe the truth that that scripture, what the word tells us about God's closeness and God's nearness to us, that you would counter any lies of the enemy, that you're all alone, that there is no way that God is able or capable or even willing to help with the fact that he is near. And Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, who lives in us now, is near. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy in these times to feel we're all alone. Father, to try to handle these situations of life with our own resources. Father, would you give us a new vision of Jesus to understand that you are near and to the degree that we draw near to you, we have this contagious calm. You're there, we just don't recognize it sometimes. We are like those forgetful disciples of all that you can do. Father, we thank you for the promise that you will not leave us. We thank you for the promise that you will not forget us. We thank you for the promise that you are near. And so, Father, as we yield our hearts to you to do that great work that you do inside of us, that we would just experience this contagious calm, that our anxieties and our fears and our anger would dissipate and that this volcano would not erupt because you dealt with what's deep down inside of us, the pressure of our hearts. Father, we thank you that we walk through this together with you. Help us to be contagiously calm. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.